morning we've got the wonderful Emma Thompson with us and some of you will um, recognise her and know her. Um, me and Emma were both part of 24-7 Year Out in 2008. Um, so we were the wild 18-year-olds there. <laughs> and it's been great to journey with Emma and track just what God's done in her life. And she's married Pete and now they're kids. And Emma is someone that's just completely sold out for Jesus, completely sold out for his mission on earth. Um, she is one of those radical people that you don't want to talk to for too long because they're going to have to sell your whole house and never buy any new clothes again. And, um, you know, she just looks after the planet, you know. So Emma is just an amazing person. She's full of life. Um, she's very, she's into drama and performance, got an amazing voice. Um, Emma and Pete led a 24-7 community in West Belfast, which is um, it was a tiny Protestant um, neighbourhood in the midst of a Catholic um, community and just radically loving Jesus and seeking him in that place. She's part of the prayer space team in Ireland, so she heads that up um, and encouraging young people to pray up and down um, yeah, Ireland as a whole. So she's just an incredible person and um, we're really privileged to have her come and share today. Emma's probably got the most difficult teaching task of them all <laughs> so <laughs> which is um yeah the rise and fall of israel um so um yeah i'm gonna hand over to emma and um i'll just pray for her now and uh we'll, we'll hand over to you em so yeah god we are just so thankful to be on this god story journey together thank you for um what you've spoken to us from creation um, through to Moses and through to today. And Father, I just really ask for Emma, thank you for all that she's given in preparation for this. Thank you for what you've been stirring in her heart. And God, we just pray that we would receive um, afresh from you. This is stories that we've heard before, but your spirit is always, yeah, isn't you, you, your mercies are new every morning, God. There's always more to discover. And I just pray that things would come alive today in us. Father, be in our discussions afterwards, be, um, yeah, just be at work, I pray. Uh, just pray for Emma as she shares that she would um, she would know your Holy Spirit leading and, and anointing over her. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Emma, over to you. Well, that was possibly one of the nicest introductions I've ever had. Shal, uh, thank you very much. Yeah, me and Shal go way back. Definitely not like cool, trendy 18-year-olds these days. Definitely more grey more weathered and probably have completely different views on the world now than I did when I was uh, 18. 2008 feels like a very long time ago, uh, especially today. So thanks for having me. It's like really cool to be with you guys. I have not done something like this in a very long time. Uh, <laughs> we uh, went traveling in a van, as you guys uh, saw on my wee bio. That, thanks for that, Charles. You just stole off the press space website, didn't you, on your wee bio. Uh, and so this, this is like, a bit of like dusting some stuff off here to, to to be with you guys so it's such a real privilege on pentecost as well and i just like didn't even realize it was pentecost till last week so and hopefully this honors the church as much as the church needs to be honored uh on a day when we celebrate its birthday um and yes charles said uh this is quite a big topic <laughs> it's like massively big so there's over 14 generations in this period of time that Charles given me. Thanks very much. Oh, actually, I chose it to be fair because I thought if I do May, maybe I can be with you. That backfired, and here we are. So, anyway.
anyway, uh, there's over 14 generations. So there's 14 generations from Abraham um, to David, and then 14 generations from David to the exile, and then 14 generations exile to Jesus. So this period of time spans over 14 generations. Exactly the number, I'm not sure. I couldn't find it. Um, but it's a big, big chunk of time. Um, and, and it's mammoth. This period of time is like a really epic movie. <laughs> there's like war, there's battle, there's like disaster and scandals and unfaithfulness and, and loads and loads of genealogy, loads and loads of breakdowns of names and people. Um, it's a really big period of time and I'm not going to cover that in 45 minutes. So today what I'm going to like hopefully scale down on is a bit of time from Joshua to David making some assumptions knowing that you've already done God's story a few times that you actually have pulled stuff out of the other parts you know the, the other big bigger section uh, already um, so it's a really complicated quite a frustrating time uh, in in Israel's life uh, and sometimes it is a bit like what what are you actually doing here God what is going on a lot of the Old Testament you can look at and be like mm, what is really going on here it's like this really big narrative and in some ways the rise and fall of Israel I think is just the rise and fall of humanity so reading these chapters I just kind of feel like that that's my story as much as it is Israel's story of trusting God's promise walking into my inheritance loving life being with Jesus everything's brilliant and then I kind of life just gets in the way and I kind of just forget or I just other things take a priority and I don't realize it but I've kind of lost God in the middle of it all only later on to look back over my life or over the situations and realize God's actually always been with me. Jesus has been all over my story from the beginning. And that is the Israelites' story and that they live in. So today I'm not going to focus on like the wider narrative, the big stories, the big kind of climax things that happen. I'm going to, like the big kind of movie moments, I'm going to like drill down on some smaller stories in the middle of this, which focus on how God is outworking his promise and his presence and for me that theme of promise and presence is the biggest thing that stood out um, as it ultimately points towards what Jesus did so this whole God story like from beginning to end is one of promise and presence like before God made the world he made a promise to you and to me that he would be with us that he would continue to find a way for him to be with us like he wanted us so badly that he was like I am going to persevere through a whole lot of rubbish so that I can be with you. He's a God of promise that he makes, but he's a God of covenant and invites us into the story because covenant requires at least two parties. So this God who promised to be with us, who created the world, made a promise and he invited us into that story from day one. And then we see in this covenantal relationship starts with Israel. He starts with this people. So to give you a brief kind of overview of um, uh, this period of time, you've just, as Matt talked about Moses, Moses dies and then Joshua steps up. God raises him up to lead the children of Israel out of the wilderness, into their inheritance, into the thing they have been waiting for, for such a long time. And he and Caleb, are the only two people from that generation that get to encounter it, that get to experience it. That must have been, like, incredible. Like, God raises him up and passes on this covenantal mantle from Moses 
to him and says, you are going to lead my people into what they've been waiting for. So he does what God asks and he leads his people into the promise. There's battles won, there's walls that fall, there's boundaries and territories made. And he creates this amazing life for the Israelites. And then we read that God gives them rest, that they've stepped into their inheritance. They're in the place that their ancestors dreamed of. And it's like, yes, we're here. And God gives them rest. There's no more fighting. There's no more arguing. You can rest in my presence but there's part of that resting requires them keeping to the law and Joshua brings the tribes together at the end of Joshua just before he dies he's an old man and he sends this really stern message to the Israelites that they need to remain faithful to the law that Moses had um, so that God's presence can dwell here and it's something that we see actually time and time again in Joshua's life he does to the Israelites. And so in Joshua 23, we read that after a long time had passed and the Lord had given Israel rest from all their enemies around them, rest in my presence. Joshua, by then a very old man, summoned all Israel, their elders, leaders, judges and officials and said to them, I am very old. You yourself have seen everything the Lord has done for you to all these nations for your sake it was the lord your god who fought for you remember how i've allotted as an inheritance for your tribes all the land of the nations that remain the nations i conquered between jordan and the mediterranean sea in the west the lord your god himself will push them out for your sake he will drive them out before you and you will take possession of their land as the lord god has promised you there is more ahead for you stay in my presence there is more ahead for you be very strong and be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or the to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God until you have now. There is more ahead for you, Israel. There is more ahead for you. There's more promise. I am going to fight for you. I'll be with you. You just have to keep my law. You just have to keep the thing that makes you a people who can inhabit my presence. Like, that's like the dream. They're living in like their like mountaintop experience. That's what we all really want. But we find out a few later on that that doesn't really happen. But before they get there, Israel, um, sorry, Joshua gathers Israel at Shechem. I never really know how it's pronounced, but that's what I'm going with. Shechem is the place where he promised. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's right, but you can... Yeah, whatever. Um, it's the place of promise where Abraham stood. Abraham stood in that place and first heard the promise from God to him for the land. It's a really significant place. And Joshua gathers them and says to them, guys, let's renew this covenant. So let's almost, let's write it again. Let's put it down in paper. Let's go over what does it mean for us to be people who inhabit God's presence, to be God's chosen people. So he kind of lays out these terms and conditions. And all the Israelites are like, yeah, yeah, that, that's good. Yeah, we're game. They, they kind of sign on the dotted line. We are going to be the people that carry the promise, the presence of God. We are the covenantal people. But then you get to Judges. And Judges is like a great big breakup. Like not long after Joshua dies, you hear that there was a new generation that rose up that didn't know God, that didn't hold the covenant. So in Joshua 2, 
10. Uh, sorry, Judges 2.10, we hear, after that whole generation had been gathered up to their ancestors, after that they'd all died and, and moved on, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served Baals. They forsook the Lord and God, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. Like in a few pages, we don't like, we just read about like chaos looming. Like God raises up judges in this period of time and he promises to be with them to help get Israel back on track, guys. Come on, just come back on track a wee bit. Like this is what I'm saying to you. I'm going to relentlessly pursue you even though you keep slamming the door in my face and spitting at me pretty much giving me the finger they're like sabotaging all the goodness god has given them and it's spiraling spiraling he raises up these judges to be his mouthpiece but the israelites don't really care <laughs> they don't really hold fast to to those promises of god they don't take heart to what those people are saying and every time a judge dies we hear that god goes silent god goes silent in that period of time god is dead to these israelites how horrific when you've come from the promises where you've been to this and in judges 21 25 we read a really stark this is the end of judges this is what they say at that time there was no king of israel and the people did whatever they felt like doing kind of happens today in many ways we can parallel the life of israel so much with humanity but we often turn our back give God the finger, do our own thing as humanity. There was no king and the Israelites, the people, they just ignored the king. They didn't want anything to do with the covenant that God had made, this beautiful promise that he invited them into was in tatters somewhere in history. But God still kept his promise. He had a plan because God always keeps his promise. So even in the chaos this real heartbreak, this awful period of time, God has a plan. And then in Step Samuel, these chapters of Samuel, which starts with a little boy, baby boy, given back to God, who raises up uh, and leads Israel. And it's like a new chapter for Israel's relationship with God. It's like, right, once again, we have this new chapter, a new beginning to get on track with God. And after the Ark of the Covenant has kind of been uh, stolen and moved around a few times and it ends back in Israel and all the people of Israel turn back to God hooray they're back we've come we're back in the slip line we're like working our way back to God we've realized he's probably the best thing and Samuel's response to that in second Samuel, uh, first Samuel 2 is if you are truly serious about coming back to God get a clean house Get rid of your foreign gods and fertility goddesses. Ground yourself firmly in God. Worship him and him alone, and he'll save you from this Philistine oppression. Once again, there's that affirmation of, guys, if you want to get right with God, that's great that you're coming to him, but this is what it will mean for you. You need to follow the law, and you need to worship him and him alone. So they kind of, they do that, and they say, yes, once again, we're in. We want to be part of this story again. And it starts this new chapter for Israel. Uh, but there's always a sort of elephant in the room. They're never really able to kind of shake off the stuff that stops them being people who can inhabit God's presence. Ultimately, they don't really see God as king, as the one that is enthroned, as in his rightful place. They don't really do what it means for them to love God and to worship him and fear him. They don't really 
are, and they aren't really able to encompass what that means. They can't shake off the dust of the past in many ways. So they come to Samuel in his old age and say, look, we want a king like every other nation. Give us a king that we can see and who's like mighty and lead us into battle and will do all the great things and we can literally see. We want a king to do all the things that actually God has already done, already promised he will do, but actually we just want to see it. And that makes Samuel quite angry. And he goes to God and he's like, these people, they don't understand, they don't recognise you. They want a God now. They want a king now, God. And God says, oh, okay. They can have their king, but this is what it's going to take. And this is what that king will do. A stark warning to the Israelites, like, I will give you what you want, but this is what it's going to cost. So Samuel goes back to the Israelites and says, okay, right, you, you can have your king, but this is what it will mean if you have a king. He's going to take your children and make them serve him. He's going to take all the good stuff, all your crops, all the things that are rich and beautiful, and claim them for his own. He's going to take his rights. He's not going to be a good king. He's not going to be what the king is. But they still say, yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah, that sounds good. That's what I want because I want to see him. I want that king. So they say, yes, I want to have the king. And then in steps Saul, this tall, beautiful, handsome man of great stature who's going to lead them and be a great warrior and do all the things that human kings should do. And whilst Saul, he starts off like in favour with God. He, he starts off anointed. We hear that he, like Samuel anoints him. He started off in a good place. But then gradually, as the story progresses, we start to see that actually he ignores what God has asked of him. And towards the end of Samuel, you hear God say that I'm rejecting you of king of Israel. And Saul goes to Samuel in a panic, like how, basically help me out, mate. What do I do here to get back in God's graces? And Samuel's just like, you've rejected the word of God and he has rejected you of the king of Israel. This king that they wanted has been rejected by God. He is no longer the king that they need. And even in this chaos, even in like, God has done what they've asked, gave him a king, even though it's like, that must really break God's heart once again. He has a plan. And his plan is wrapped up in this little boy from Bethlehem, who's the youngest in his family, who doesn't really look like anything much. Even Samuel goes to the house of Jesse and says, oh, he's your eldest. He's going to be the one. And God's like, no, no, no. This boy is who's going to be king. Anoint him. Because God sees our hearts and what is inside more valuable than what is external. And ultimately, David's life is a taste of what he's going to do in Jesus. Like David is a taste of what he's doing, going to do in Jesus. And even when Israel doesn't hold up its side of the bargain, like they literally like trample all over this covenant. They totally ignore God. Like God is dead to them in Judges. Like I do not like God, you are dead. Who are you? Even when like he bends and he gives them a king and it goes pear-shaped, he still keeps his promise. Because he wants to be with us. And he wants us to be able to be with him. In the chaos of these chapters, God is still keeping his promise, which is hard to see in the middle of the storm. We've all been in that this year. It's hard to see in the middle of the chaos and brokenness and in the real depths of our pain or when you just feel like God is dead to me. God has still got a plan. He's still choosing unlikely people to 
fulfill that plan. Because from the start, God relentlessly, relentlessly pursued humanity. He pursued us and he keeps his promise even when we don't, even when we aren't capable. Like Israel's problem was they weren't capable of keeping those commandments. And, and, and God still chooses to lavish, to be with them, to say, I'm going to fight for you. I will be your God. Which we ultimately, all that stuff, all that pain, all the chaos comes together in the life of Jesus. That covenant that we can uphold is fulfilled in Jesus. And this period of time is like the storming of that covenant, of the storming of the relationship of humanity, which we see come together in Jesus. And I mean, that's a, that's a very brief overview of a very complex period of time. Where there's loads more that you could go into, which I'm sure you have gone into. But what I want to kind of drill down on now is some of the ways God chooses to outwork his promise and presence in this time chooses the ways in which he's choosing the methods he chooses the people he chooses to outwork his promise and his presence in this time because he raised up people often unlikely people in unlikely ways and he chose them to be the agents of change to be the agents of bore his promise in this season so joshua joshua like is propelled quite like beginning of Joshua. You literally hear Moses died. God raises up Joshua and says, you're going to take my children into the promised land. It's like, boom. Okay. Right. Here we go. But like Moses, uh, Joshua was Moses's aide. He like served him. He watched him. He knew what Moses was like. He knew that Moses trusted God and that God could be trusted. And do you know what? I think God trusted Joshua of his character to be the person to lead him his children out of uh, the wilderness and into their promised land and, and then you get this kind of story of jericho story i'm sure we all know very well we sing a lovely song about jericho one that i absolutely love often sing it when i run like yeah anyway um uh, and the story of jericho is one we all know but i think when you read it, it does feel a bit random like God just has these demands of like, right, you're going to walk around once a day for six days, seventh day, like give it rockers, the walls are going to fall, you'll take the land, bam. Like, and, and, and I know there's often, there's method in his madness always, but as an Israelite, they're all just like, you don't really hear much about how they like dealt with it. They just used to hear Joshua said, this is what we're going to do. And this is what happened. And they were just, woo, bam, bam, walls are ours. We've taken the land. It is a bit random. <laughs> But they had an obedience. They trusted God. They came from a place. Joshua knew God could be trusted. And he believed God when before they even went into Jericho, God said, I have given you Jericho. So for Joshua, it's like, well, what else? Of course, we're just going to go and we're going to do it. And we're going to do whatever God says. This random series of events, which isn't random, but feels random, is what's going to get us in, into, the, into Jericho. Because Joshua trusted God. He knew that there was a link between God's presence and his promise. He knew that the presence and the promise God were intrinsically connected. That actually the promise means nothing without God's presence. It means nothing if we can't be people who inhabit God's praise. We can't be people who inhabit God's praise. We need to be people who can follow the law. Because when we follow the law then we can be people where God's presence dwells well. The promise is nothing without God's presence. 
And we read throughout Joshua that actually he's constantly reminding the Israelites this and that they needed to keep the commands of Moses because that was what's going to keep them in the promised land. That's what's going to keep God's presence with us. It's a story of obedience, radical, but it's a story of what it means to have promise and presence intertwined. And within this story, you have this woman, Rahab. Rahab the harlot. Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the liar. Somewhere in the promise of God, in how he was choosing to outwork his promise on humanity, was a prostitute who lied. Was a prostitute who feared God, who actually just went about her everyday business because prostitutes have people coming to their houses. Prostitutes have men in and out. It wasn't necessarily anything different to have these men, these spies in her house. But in the process, she recognised, she feared God and she said, I like I give God. I I I like I recognize that He is He is who He is and He can be trusted. So I'm gonna show you guys mercy. And God, will you show me mercy in return? And God does so much more than show this woman mercy, this Canaanite prostitute, this hated enemy of Israel. She was an enemy of God's chosen people, is in the bloodline of Jesus. Like that's that's massive. That actually God chose a woman to outwork his promise, a woman who was other, not in his chosen people. And do you know what? Jesus doesn't just identify with like that whole, like Jesus was the friend of sinners. He doesn't just, he's not just a friend of sinners. He doesn't just identify with us on some empathetic level of like, You're, I'm a friend of you. Like it literally flows through Jesus's blood. Jesus's bloodline came through a series of people. And one of those people, was a prostitute but God showed her mercy and, and Joshua tells a story of obedience and trust and what it means to fear God and stay in his promise the ten commandments were created as you've read in Moses to, to, to the Israelite people to help them be people who God's presence could inhabit I mean some of those are easier said that was holy there's some other things in those that are more tricky, but they were there to say, actually, as a people, if you follow these commands, I can inhabit you. You can be people that experience my presence. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But it just it just wasn't enough. There's almost still this separation of state for the Israelites. You've got kind of presence here, promise here, kind of I get one, not the other, not sure how they can really be fulfilled and unified. The Ark of the Covenant's kind of over there, have to follow all these rules, yada, yada, yada. There's still kind of a separation of state for the Israelites until Jesus's blood came and fulfilled that law. Until he came away. He made a way for the curtains to be torn, for that temple to flow freely into us. And we now, we are God's temples. That is like phenomenal that, that God made a way for his promise and his presence to be realised in Jesus so that we become people who embody his presence. We become that, like he is here with us. And so after that period, you get judges. You get judges and like judges is awful. It's not a good read. It's not something you pick up before bed and think, let's read with the judges and then I'll have a lovely sleep. It's, it's awful. It's heartbreaking. It's like, God, why did you even bother? Why didn't you just like give up and like wash your hands of these people? But God finds his answer, his answer to these horrific people in a broken, barren woman 
who pours out her tears to God, her turmoil to God. Hannah, Samuel's mother, is a woman who is barren. She can't have kids. And year and year and year after year, the, um, her husband's other wife constantly like teases her and makes jokes. And, and actually not being able to bear a child when you want one is horrific. I've never had to go through that pain, but it's awful. And she pours out that turmoil, that trauma, gives it all to God and says, God, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. Like she is broken inside. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. She makes this promise in the middle of her turmoil to say, God, I want to give it back to you. I will give this back to you. I just really, this is my desire. And Samuel, Samuel is the one that almost reignited, kickstarted the relationship with Israel and God, like kind of reinstated that covenant. Samuel was pivotal in the journey. And it started with a barren, broken woman. And her response to her turmoil was to turn to God. And like, even in her, like she said that she was weeping bitterly. I'm sure her prayer didn't come from a place of happy clappy, but like the real depth of, oh God, this is how I feel and this is awful. And just poured it out to God. God's solution to reignite his connection with a broken, barren people was to, re, to use a woman who was broken and barren. This broken, barren, mocked woman was who he used to reinstate that connection with his broken world, his broken people. Like that must have been a beautiful moment for God when Hannah prayed to him, when she poured out her pain. That whole thing about the prayers of the saints be like sweet smelling incense. I'm sure that was a sweet smelling incense for God's heart that this woman gave it all back to him and poured it out to him and said, I, God, I want him to be yours. And what we know of Samuel is that he rose up, he led judges, he reignited that, that covenantal relationship and he ramped up the odds because Hannah, Samuel, Samuel, Saul, Saul, but David. And David, David was this person that gave a whole new <laughs> framework on how they saw God. It was like leveled up. Like you've just reached a whole new level. I've upped the odds, upped the ante in what my love's going to look like for you right now through David. But before we talk about David, I want to take a wee kind of sidestep from the Israel story and talk about Ruth. Okay, Ruth is happening. This story of Ruth is happening about the time of the judges. It's at the same time, but it's a very different narrative to the one that we're currently on so just a brief overview of Ruth is Ruth is this Moabite woman who married Naomi's son uh, and Naomi's from Bethlehem and when her son Naomi's son dies Ruth's husband and Naomi's husband and her other son died so that's quite a complicated way to say that so basically Naomi had husband and two sons they all died Ruth was married to one that's a better way to explain it um, they uh, Naomi decides you know what there's nothing left for me here I'm going to go back to my homeland. But she says to her daughter-in-laws, you guys, you don't, you don't need to come with me. There's nothing there for you. You stay here. But Ruth's response to her mother-in-law is, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where will I go and where will I stay? Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, even if death separates you and me. She takes on 
Naomi's life, essentially. She takes on what Naomi carries and says, I wanna, your God is my God. Your life is my life. Your people are my people. Kindness is a lot about Jesus. He takes on the form of humanity and says, I'm, I'm gonna be there. You are gonna be my people. I'm gonna unite us all. Um, so the two of them return back to Bethlehem and they get there and they're two women. They are off the lowest class anyway. They are the bottom of the rung anyway. They don't have anyone to speak for them. They're trying to find their feet again as they get to Bethlehem. So Ruth goes out to a field to glean the wheat, which was a Levitican like law. It wasn't something that people did out of charity. It was like, this is the law. You guys probably know this anyway. But the law is that we'll leave part of the field that the poor can come and glean so that they can feed themselves. So she just goes to a field, picks the field, and that field happens to be Boaz. And Boaz is Naomi's kingsman redeemer, which uh, it's a very fancy word, but basically means that Boaz's responsibility to Naomi was if anything was to happen to her family, he was responsible for her. And we know that something did happen to Naomi's family. Everyone died. So Ruth chooses the field of the person who was going to be her redeemer. She didn't know it, but she just goes and goes about her everyday business, trying to feed her family. And once Naomi realizes this, she's like, bing, I've got an idea. Um, I've just, in my head, got my child's like, I have an idea. I have an idea. It's from like a stupid children's show. And now it's going to ring around my head. But she has this idea uh, to, to, to get Boaz and, and Naomi to marry, basically. Now, Boaz is an older man. He's not necessarily a first choice of a husband, but he is kind. He is of good nature. He follows the law and actually he upholds it and he shows great mercy to Naomi and Ruth. And he, long story short, decides, yeah, actually, yeah, I will marry you, Ruth. I will buy that land off you, Naomi. I will make you noble again. I will give you a home. He is there. He redeems these two women from, from despair. And it is... A story which on the face of it is very separate to the one we're on. I mean, there's no like, God is dead. There's no like chaos <laughs> looming. It's just a woman going about her everyday business. But God intervenes. Ruth is a Moabite woman, which at the time, they were people to be wary of. They weren't people that you were going to be friends with as an Israelite. They were like, hmm. But she breaks all social conventions to do what is right by her mother-in-law Naomi. It's a big, big message in a very short story. And as God's chosen people, as the ones that like he has chosen are spiraling out of control, giving God the finger, whatever, he uses this foreigner woman, which two of those things in themselves mean massive weight to them because they're not, she's not the obvious choice to outwork his covenantal promise that ultimately unifies the entire God story. It unifies the entire God story through this woman, this foreigner woman. Because Ruth, and Boaz have a son called Obed. And Obed is David's grandfather. So once again, in the bloodline of Jesus, you've got this woman who was a foreigner, who's the other, who's the what? Who God, in the middle of chaos, is choosing to outwork his promise. It's like a conscious choice. I'm choosing these people to outwork my promise. You might not realise it right now, but in years to come, you're going to understand why that's important. So to David, sidestep, back to David, Ruth, very important, Rahab, very important, but back to David, who is, you know, he's one of the big players, we all know about David, David has more coverage in the Bible than any other person bar Jesus, that's quite, that's, that's a lot of pages, a lot of pages dedicated to that man, um, and he is almost God's response 
to Saul, the disaster that Saul was, kind of like the anti-Saul, like Saul was cool, tall and gorgeous and beautiful and grand in stature and fought the battles and was rah, rah, rah. Like, almost like David's like the anti that. He was this boy, he was meek, he was humble. He didn't necessarily force his way into anything. He just trusted God. And we see that actually David is often called the imperfect Messiah because he is the person that ups the ante, that reflects, that mirrors so much of who Jesus is going to be. And from the very start, when Samuel goes to Jesse's house and he looks at all the boys and he anoints David, from the very start, this shepherd boy, this shepherd boy who served and he just went about his everyday business, he trusted God. He trusted God enough to go out against a flipping big giant with just a wee slingshot, no armour, and actually that probably pissed Saul off a little bit because you're like, why are you, why are you rejecting my armour? And Saul said, don't take my armour. I don't need your armour because the trust God is with me. This boy, like, God used a boy who trusted God enough to go and kill a giant with no armour on. And his character continues to shine through uh, and across the pages when him and Saul, like, they start off in good, good relations and then gradually things get a little bit more tricky. And on two occasions, David has the opportunity to kill Saul to kill Saul, become king. But David's response is just to say, no, actually, God will be my judge between you and me, and he will plead my case and deliver me. This humble servant gets elevated to king, king over Judah, and then over Israel, unites those two tribes, those two really important tribes that ultimately unified in Jesus, not because he forces his way into any situation, but because he trusts God. He just trusts, his character is one that just trusts God and walks with him. And then in 2 Samuel 7 comes the next big move from God. The next big move. So you've had like Samuel reinstated some of that covenantal promise. Joshua had it, Israel's lost it. Samuel came in and like reinstated it. And then David comes in and almost gives it another level, another dimension of what God's going to look like, what the next few year, few hundred thousand years are going to look like uh, for us. And uh, that says this, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood, I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son but when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will establish forever. It's just like massive promise. Oh, it's talking about the Messiah. But it isn't talking about the Messiah because Jesus does not sin. <laughs> so this like you kind of read it and you get up, like up the ante, woo, this is all talking about Jesus, this is what's going to happen. But actually, this divine promise is actually setting us up for the way in which God is going to outwork. Even when David's line, David's um, descendants fail miserably, this is what I'm going to do. This is how it's going to work out. That ultimately we see in Christ. This is almost like a new declaration of how things are going to be. This is how things were with Israel. And this is how it's going to be from here on out. This is what my love's going to look like. This is how I'm going to deal with people. And this house, this David's house, 
is going to be the thing that changes the world. And David becomes like a marker for what people then expect the Messiah to look like. And in fact, actually, Jeremiah and Ezekiel literally say, the new king will be David. So in Ezekiel 34, verse 23 says, I place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend to them and he will tend to them and be their shepherd. I will be the Lord among their God and my servant David will be a prince among them. Ezekiel literally says, new Messiah, the Messianic king is just going to be David. There were so many parallels between the two of them that that's just how they saw it was going to be. And it is this level up. God is outworking his promise in a new dimension, in a new way. And if we read further into David's story, as you will, actually what happens is we discover so much more about God is using this man to mirror who Jesus is. And whilst Joshua and David are both real big players in the story of God, they are big players in this grand narrative who carry so much. Rahab, Hannah, Ruth. They are almost forgotten <laughs> women. They are uh, the people that actually these stories of Rahab, Hannah and Ruth are hidden in the wings of that wider narrative, but they are vital. Without those women, we don't have Jesus. Without those women, we don't get God's presence. We aren't his temples. But God used all these people, Joshua, and David to show how God looks at our hearts and he uses the everyday outworkings of people's lives. Joshua just went about his business. Rahab went about her business. Ruth just did what she needed to do to feed her family. David's just a shepherd boy in his fields, tending his sheep, going about his business. He uses those small, insignificant, often overlooked things to be the things that change the world. All these people face turmoil, heartbreak, disaster. They face the fullness of human expression. But that is what God weaves together for his redemption story. Yes, there's that overarching narrative that happens in this story of what happens uh, with the Israelites and then through to David, there's all the judges. There's all this big stuff going on, but in the middle of them are ordinary, everyday people going about their business that God uses. That is phenomenal. And when you fast forward to Jesus, he gives this declaration of what it means for God's kingdom. He gives this beatitude. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. These people, Rahab, Hannah, Ruth, they encompass this. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. David. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Rahab. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That summary encompasses these people. They were blessed people. These broken, overlooked, sinful other people were blessed and God used them in their everyday lives to outwork his promise. And us, me, broken, overlooked, sinful, other, you, broken, overlooked, other, sinful people, God is using to outwork his promise for the world today. That is huge. Even before Jesus came and unified and completed the law and like, brought it all together in a lovely bow, which was a bit of a disgusting bow because he died. But 
in that in Jesus before all that happened you had God whispering over the Old Testament whispering over these passages this is what my kingdom's going to look like these are the people that really matter the narrative is important but what really is important is you in the middle of it see God's promise has made a way for us to fully encounter his presence we get to fully encounter us we are people who are living in the full presence of God but it is only in his presence that we fully encounter his promise I'll say that again his promise made a made it fully sorry his promise made it fully again I can't talk gonna have a wee drink his promise made a way for us to fully encounter his presence but his presence is only fully encountered his promise right, right scrap that right round three his promise made a way for us to fully encounter his presence, but it's only in his presence that we fully encounter his promise. It's only in his presence we fully get what the promise means. The Israelites, they only fully received their inheritance, were able to rest when they kept the law, because the law was what made them people who could inhabit God's presence. And as I kind of finish I wonder what that means for us today on Pentecost, the day we celebrate the presence of God being poured out and the church's birth. It's massive. What does it mean for us to be people who inhabit his presence and trust his promises? Broken, overlooked other people to be the agents of change in our world. I mean, Jesus fulfilled the law. He brought it all together. The curtain was torn. That separation between state almost dissolved there was none like his presence flows freely jesus did what we couldn't do what humanity could never do could never uphold our side of the covenant we could never do that but god still chose to try we could never do it jesus fulfilled it we are his royal priesthood we are god's temples like that is huge in the context of the israelites had this ark of the covenant which was very beautiful which is very sacred we Broken vessels are what God now chooses to be his temples. And whilst we don't need to uphold these Ten Commandments and live by a law to be worthy of God's presence, we still need to be good temples. So my question to us is what sort of temples are we going to be? We can be temples where God dwells richly, or we can be really shoddy ones. A temple is still going to be the temple. But it's how we are going to position ourselves and what do we need to do to make ourselves places where God's spirit dwells richly. Because that is where his promise is realised and that is what changes the world. Henry Newen, and anyone that knows me will know that I am a little bit obsessed with Henry Newen. I would write in fan mail every day if he was still alive. He's like, yeah, I just like, it's like God, you know, Jesus and then Newen. And Brené Brown, she's up there too, because she's a babe. Um, anyway, if you've never read Brené Brown or Newen, read them. This book particularly, this is a wee plug, Spiritual Direction by Newen, very good. Uh, our mind's falling apart. Uh, anyway, so Newen says this. Now I wonder whether I sufficiently realise that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me and to love me. That is the story of humanity, that is God's story. The question is not how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by God? The question is not how am I to know God, 
but how am I to let myself be known by God? The question is not how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? And finally, the question is not who is God for me, but who am I to God? The promise of God's presence wasn't just that he could be with us, but that we could be with him. He wanted us to be with him. It's not a one-way relationship. It's a two-way thing. And yesterday, um, Micah, Micah, Micah likes mummy time. Since we've had Sella, so Micah is four. Sella is like 20 months going on 20. Um, since we've had Sella, Micah doesn't get a whole lot of mummy time. So when Sella naps, it's like mummy time. And yesterday, for some reason, whatever it was, he just wanted to have mummy time, but really have mummy time. Like I'm always with Micah. The only time he's not with me is for two hours a day when he's at nursery and one evening a week when I go out for a flower course. Like he's always with me, but he wanted to be with me. Like he wanted to be with me. So that meant I literally wasn't allowed to go make my lunch or get up off the sofa to stretch and fold my sourdough, which if you've done sourdough in lockdown, you'll know vital to get those folds in. I wasn't able to do any of that stuff. I literally had to sit on the sofa and he just laid on me and put his arms and just told me he loved me all the time. And I kept saying, oh my God, can I like go to the toilet? He's like, no, I just want to be with you, mummy. The question in that time was not, how can I love Micah better by being a good mum? So how do I let myself be loved by Micah? How do I let myself be found by him in this space? How do I let myself be with him in this space? And that meant I didn't fold my sourdough. It meant I had to physically stand still and slow down and be present. There were things that I had to do that meant other stuff didn't happen, but it made me a good vessel to inhabit the presence of my son. And that is what God wants from us, to be people who can inhabit his presence. And I don't know what that looks like for us today. I don't know what it looks like for you today, but just as I close, I kind of want to leave you with, with a couple of thoughts around promise and presence, because promise and presence are so like intrinsically connected. We need them. We can't have one without the other. We need both his promise and his presence. It's been a brutal year I don't know how you guys have found lockdown I have found it the lowest of lows I've probably ever felt in my life but also experience in the middle of the lowest of lows some beautiful moments it's been a hard year for everyone and you guys maybe some of you today feel like the Israelites still in the wilderness you're not really sure what God's promises are anymore you're not really sure he can be trusted or what God what are you even say this is just really hard and I can't see what's ahead of me you might feel like that. Some of us might feel the opposite. Actually, we feel like, God, the only thing that sustained me in this awful year is your promises. The only thing that got me through is trusting that you are who you say you are, trusting the promises I felt you say on my life, trusting that you are a God. And some of us will be in the middle of that. Not really sure how I feel about that. I'm not really sure I've thought about God's promises or what's important. Just kind of like mosey on. I don't know where any of you guys are today. But what I do know is that regardless of where we sit in God's promises, regardless of how we feel about them, we'll only fully realise them when we step into his presence, when we become people who inhabit his presence. So you're going to go into breakout rooms in a minute. Um, and I want you to think about what are those promises of God? Where are you within those promises of God? Have you even thought about it? Has this year left you in the wilderness? <laughs> Has it left you really focusing on some of the promises of God? 
what are the, some of the things that may be forgotten about that God has realized to you? Pete, my husband said to me yesterday, he was like, what I've needed God to do is remind me of the promises that he told me because I felt like I've just been in a cloud and I haven't actually taken the time to stop and take stock and realize maybe that's you guys today. Where are you within the promises of God? What are his promises for you, for your community, for your world? As you come into a prayer, what is God declaring over you as an individual? What are you looking forward to? What is that thing in the, in the, in the horizon your inheritance you're stepping into? But in that, what have you focused on? Are you more focused on the promises of God or God's presence? Have we put God's promise above his presence? Or are we actually just not even like living in the, pre- in the promise? Where are you and, and what are you focused on right now? And finally, what would it take for you to be a good vessel to inhabit God richly? This theme around being God's people who inhabit his presence. God is with us all the time but he wants to be with us. He's here all the time, but he wants to be here with us. And do you know what? He wants us to be here with him. You remember that thing like, you're in the room, but you're not really in the room. So you're like, someone's talking to you, but you're not really, you're not really there. Or you're talking to someone, you know, you're not, you're not really listening. You're here, but you're not really here. God wants us to be really here with him. He wants us to be a people who inhabit his presence. Because if we don't become good temples, not shoddy ones, I want to be a good temple. His promise for the world, for us, for our communities, is never going to be fully realised. It's never going to be fully understood. So what will it take for you to be a good vessel? And before we go into break our rooms, I just want to share with you quickly, I know that I'm probably rabbiting on here, but uh, quickly about what that's meant for me. Um, because it's important. Um, so we... Charlotte, we like when uh, Stella was born and we decided to sell all our stuff and go and live in a camper van for a year and travel. So this was back in November 2019 and that all got interrupted because of COVID. Um, but before COVID happened, I kind of like set out on our journey, living in a van with my children and my, my husband, all like, this is going to be lovely. I'm going to get into really good holy rhythms with God. That was one of my like things I wanted to do good rhythms with God, good prayer time, good Bible time, come back real like changed and transformed and then this really good rhythm to help set us up for life. And that just, that didn't happen because actually I have two small children and regardless of whether you're in a van or at home, they're still two small children who demand a lot of you. So I realised, okay, that isn't really going to happen. And I felt a bit fraudulent. I felt a bit like, God, we haven't really done what I set out to do. (laughs) I haven't really done this uh, and then COVID happened and we had to come home and abandon our van in Bulgaria which thank you Rob and Sally without you that wouldn't have been possible so we literally left our van and everything we have in a camper van in Bulgaria for four months three or four months and came home which was awful that promise that we were going to have this year out the promises I was holding tight to of God felt dead and it was awful God, where are you at? What is going on here? I just grieved for such a long period of time. I couldn't even work out what is going on. Um, But before then, one of the things God felt God say was, I am, I am with you. I have good things for you. Trust the process was always what I felt God say. And obviously hindsight, I can now see that. Um, I trusted the process, you know, even though it was hard and brutal sometimes, but I still was like, okay, God, I'm going to give you whatever this is. 
and, and pour it back out to you. And um, when we went back to get our van, we went back in J- July, there was a window opportunity, we could go get it, drive home. We went and got our van and I really, I started reading um, Garden City by uh, John Mark Kuma, Coma, can never pronounce his name, but started reading that. And one of the things that really stood out to me was Brugman says, those who Sabbath live all days differently. So that's me paraphrasing but he had a he has a phrase um like those who live bird sabbath live all days differently and i had this revelation that i don't need to be a super spiritual giant i just need to be someone who can inhabit god's presence and part of that is really important is rest is sabbath thing part of that 10 commandment was about sabbath rest because i realized in life i was trying to make myself a better christian but actually god wants to rest with us wants to sabbath and for me becoming a good vessel of god's holy spirit has been about okay my everyday life is what it is god i'm going to give that to you and i'm going to create a rhythm of rest to allow me to be a good vessel where you can dwell allow me to go actually god i'm going to be here with you i'm going to be here with you in that time so i don't know what that is for you guys i don't know what it means for you personally to be a good vessel a good temple of your holy spirit but i know that it's really important and god wants to use the everyday ordinary people in the everyday ordinary lives like we've seen across these passages to be the people to change the world but if you want to change the world you've got to be here with jesus if you want to change anything you have got to be a good vessel for God's Holy Spirit. So um, do you want me to put those questions up in a chat or something, Charles? Is that helpful? Yeah, if you could, um, if you send them to me by WhatsApp, I'll forward that on. So, All right, I'll do that. So. Emma, thank you so much. You have, oh my goodness, I don't know how many years you've just covered in this hour that we've had with you. And then to zoom in on those uh, on, on different people, I, yeah, I mean, it's just great to look back at scriptures in this way and to um, walk with giants of the faith and walk with those that are on the edges of these stories, which, are, like you said, are just so crucial um, to the story. So thank you so much. We are going to go into break.